Glory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. We've had a great time worshiping the Lord this morning. I get excited worshiping my Lord. It just reminds me of how absolutely glorious and wonderful He is. High and lifted up and holy and loving and powerful, eternal, sovereign, unchanging. He is the God of all creation. And He loves me. And He loves you. And we are the recipients of His wonderful, divine love and amazing grace. Oh, that will get you to singing even if you can't sing. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Sister Cindy, for that special music. Oh, me. And the congregational praise singing. That's wonderful. I just love it. As we, uh, I, I want to explain something. You know, I, I sometimes think I know about everything that goes on around the church. And then things will happen. And, the, and, and I'll say, dog, I'm a pastor and I didn't know that. So I'm going to save some of you from being extremely perplexed one day. Maybe it might push you over the edge if you were to see what I saw today. So I'm going to go ahead and explain it to you. Or as Ricky Nelson would say, explain it. If you ever walk in the sanctuary and just happenstance to look up and see our pianist, Theresa, uh, pouring uh, fluid into the piano. See, I thought our piano ran on electricity, but I guess it's gas powered. But she had a big old... Look like a gallon container and a, and a siphon tube running into the piano. And I was thinking, what in the world are you doing, sister? I didn't know that our piano has to be hydrated. I mean, it's just one of them complicated pieces of the fine art machinery there. And so it requires water. So there she was watering our piano. And now, had you walked in just a little bit later, because I watched through the whole process then, and you would have seen her leaning over, blowing into that tube. And you may have thought that our piano was inflatable. So I just want to dispel any of those. You know, this is complicated music machinery. And I see you learn something just about every day. Just keep your eyes open. Right, Adrian? That's Friday night. I, I can understand why they need to cool it off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing got a good workout at the uh, triumphant singing uh, Friday night. We had a great time. We had a great time Friday night in the singing. We had a wonderful time last night. Thank you again, women's ministry team, for putting together such a delightful time for the adults to come together with fine food and wonderful entertainment. And uh, this bag lady that came in, Bertie, the bag lady, uh, my goodness, she just made me and my daughter feel so good about being there. And so, anyway, we just had a great time. And if you missed it, I'm sorry, but I hope you can get in on next year's because I'm sure we'll do it again. This morning, I'm going to take just a break from the Gospel of Matthew because occasionally I like to go back and remind us of our orientation as a congregation, as a body of believers, our vision. We have a vision statement as a congregation, and many of you know it by heart. Some of you for the first time. This will be the first time you've heard it. And I just want to introduce you to that and remind the rest of us about our vision and how important the church's vision is in guiding us as a congregation to accomplish what we feel God is calling us to be and to do as His people. The, the vision is simply stated, becoming. And I emphasize becoming because we haven't arrived, nor will we totally arrive until Jesus comes again. But becoming, with God's help, becoming a kingdom church for the glory of God. You know, I'm not a big commercial person, except at Super Bowl time, and I think they come out with some of the best then. 
But, but I saw one of the slickest commercials, I believe, on television just this weekend, and it just grabbed my attention. It was a commercial by the GE company. And it, and it focused in, the scene was assembly line, technicians, working like a beehive. Each one of them, each, working as fast and furious and hard and deliberate. And they were putting together, each one of them had very, you know, intricate parts. They were assembling together this humongous jet engine. And I mean, each person, you know, highly technical. You could tell they were experienced and their expertise and they knew it. But they were all working together. Each one of them had a part to play in the assembling of that massive, powerful and very uh, complicated jet engine. Well, here's the slick part of the commercial. It then went from that scene. The next scene was at the airport and lined up along an adjacent uh, uh, landing strip where all of these technicians with their uniforms on and their safety vests and helmets and safety goggles lined up on that adjoining runway. And then you saw it. You could, they were all looking off in the distance. You could see it. You could see the pride coming over their faces. You could see the exuberance beginning to show in their eyes as this gigantic, massive, beautiful 747 jet it obviously taking its maiden voyage, streaking down the runway, all four of those powerful jet engines thundering, shaking the scene, and they were watching as this massive jet began to lift up off of the, the air, the tarmac, the runway, and to began to make its way up towards the heavens, and they began to cheer. The, the ladies were hugging each other like cheerleaders after the team has just won the, the final four. It, it, the men were hitting high fives one to another, looked over and then one scene, even this big burly industrial worker lifted his safety glasses and wiped a tear from his eye. They were proud of the product from which they had worked so hard, in which they had worked so hard. I want to say this to the nursery workers back there changing diapers and rocking and feeding babies. I want to say this to the preschool workers who are so diligent and patient and caring and nurturing. I want to say this to the children's workers who are continually and consistently nurturing and guiding our children, the youth workers who are patiently guiding our teenagers through this difficult time of adolescence, to our, our adult teachers and, and, and disciples. I want to say this to the, 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 the flower and garden uh, group in our church and decorations committee. I want to say this to the buildings and, and grounds committee out there sweating in the July work day. I want to say this to the finance committee and the others who are crunching the numbers and diligently balancing our budget. I want to say this to those who are working behind the scenes to make things happen here at Cornerstone. Sometimes you may feel like what you're doing is insignificant. But I assure you, you have a part to play in a glorious and a wonderful work of God called the body of Christ. I believe what the Bible says that one day, like those GE employees lined up along that, that adjoining runway, I believe one day all of us who have faithfully, diligently, sacrificially, unselfishly served in our place of service, no matter what role it is, but we have given of ourselves to serve in the body of Christ. One glorious day, the, the groom is coming. 
He will come from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet will sound and the bride, the glorious bride, the body of Christ, the church, I'm talking about the church eternal from ages past to ages in the future. Listen, the glorious church will rise up washed in the Word of God and by the blood of Jesus and we will be shining and gleaming in the sunlight of the glory of God. And listen, we'll see the church without a blemish and we'll be beaming like those employees were. So hang on, my brother. Hang in there, my sister. A great day is dawning. In the meantime, we have a vision. A wonderful vision to guide us as a church. Becoming a kingdom church for the glory of God. Why are we here? What is it that God has got us here for? We have a vision statement that says we exist for the purpose of glorifying God by advancing His kingdom through enlisting and equipping and engaging and encouraging and empowering His people. That's why we exist. That's why God has us here. It's not about buildings. It's not about programs. It's not about social activities. Listen, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and lifting Him up and glorifying our great and glorious God. In the dictionary, you'll find the word glory defined this way. Renown and honor and praise, magnificence and resplendence, distinguishing quality. And if you look further in that same page of the dictionary, you'll find the verb glorify. What does it mean when we talk about glorifying God? Well, this is how it's defined. It means to extol, to lift up, to lighten up. In other words, to shine the spotlight on. Listen, when we glorify God, we take the light off of ourselves and we shine the light on Him. It's all about Him. Everything we do is designed for His pleasure. Everything we do should cast the light on, on the Lord Himself. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the Lord said, You are, talking about us, the church, you are the light of the world. He says, Let your light so shine that men will see your good works and do what? And shine the light. Shine the spotlight on your God. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why we are here in Ephesians in chapter 3. In verse 20, he says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can think and possibly do, according to the power, His power that worketh in us, unto Him be the glory by Christ Jesus in the church throughout all the ages, world without end. It's all about bringing glory, resplendence and magnificence and praise and honor to our God. If you want to turn over in your Bibles to Romans in chapter 11, he tells us there in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says in verse 36, For of Him, speaking of the Lord, and through Him, and to Him, can I just read that phrase again? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. All things, brothers and sisters. Not just the things of religion, but all things are to and through and for Him. To whom be glory, how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever. 
To God be the glory. For as long as there is time, for as long as there is breath in your body and my body, we are to lift Him up and give Him glory. As we go further, look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. The Apostle Paul again speaking. You've heard this, but it's good to be reminded from time to time in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 31. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having said all that he said, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let your life, dear Christian friend, be consumed with one driving desire. And that is, I want to bring glory to my God. The God who created me, who knew me and shaped and fashioned me in my mother's womb. The God who knew my name before my mother even called my name. The God to whom I owe life itself. The God who redeemed me with the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and gave me eternal life. Oh, listen to Him. Him be the glory. Live for one thing. Not to get rich. Not to be famous. Not to accumulate things. Live for one thing as you breathe and as you walk and as you go about your daily routine. Be consumed with the obsession of how can I in some small way give glory to my God. For apart from Him, ladies and gentlemen, I assure you, You and I can do nothing. Jesus made that clear in John 15. Our ultimate purpose during this time on the earth is to bring glory to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. That, my brothers and sisters, is our reason for existing. That, my dear friend, is the central part of our church's vision. And this morning, I want to challenge you I want to challenge you to take a spiritual inventory and just ask yourself, how am I doing? Personally, in fulfilling this vision, how are we doing as a congregation in fulfilling this glorious biblical vision that God has given us? How are we doing? How are we progressing? I'm extracting just a portion of our complete vision outline, if you will, To just simply lay before you some of the biblical principles that I think are biblical mandates that form the foundation. Every building has a strong foundation if it's going to stand. And I believe that the biblical mandates that make up the foundation of our vision and our existence and our identity as a people of God are these. First of all, we must carry out the great commission of our Savior Jesus Christ. We must. It must be the driving force, just like the engine in your car is what moves it forward. Just like those jet engines are what is the power that thrusts that jet up into the sky. Listen, the church is dead in the water if we're not about the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That doesn't leave anything else out, does it? All authority is given unto me. And based upon that authority, he says to his followers, he says, go. You're going to go anyway. Go. And as you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. This great commission is our commission. 
Let me tell you something. A church that is not consistently witnessing to the lost is really not a church at all. It's nothing more than a religious country club. We are called, redeemed, sanctified, filled with the Spirit to do a work. And that work is to win the world to Christ. To bring disciples to Jesus Christ. And a Great Commission church is one in which every member is a disciple making witness for the Lord. Not just the preacher, not just the, the deacons, not just the Christian growth group teachers, but every person who has had the benefit of calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing this wonderful, glorifying, eternal, eternal experience called salvation. We're all called to be witnesses for the Lord. Every opportunity we get, we should share the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Therefore sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And always be ready to give a, a reason to those who ask a, a reason for the hope or a defense for those who ask a, a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. But do it, he says, in meekness and fear. We don't share our witness with pride and arrogance and look down our nose at people who aren't, law, aren't saved. Do it in fear and trembling and realize that only by the grace of God can you call yourself a child of God. The only thing that makes you special is simply the fact that God in His sovereign providence chose, chose you and chose me, gave you faith and gave me faith. It's not because we're special. There's nothing that sets us apart from the rest of the world other than God chose to give you the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Go in trembling and fear Sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to those who ask a reason for the hope that is in your heart. But let me ask you this. As a Christian, do you go around in this dismal, sin-saturated, immoral, rebellious culture? Do you go around with the spirit of hope? Or are you as bad as the rest of the world's crowd? Do you walk around with a gloomy face and dismal outlook and you're just wringing your hands like everybody else that watches CNN and says, Oh, what's the world coming to? I'll tell you what the world's coming to. It's coming to Jesus Christ. No, He's coming to the world. He's got it under control. The hope that is in us. Every means available to us must be utilized. In every relation that you and I have. Whether that be on the job, in our family, with our friends, work associates, schoolmates. Wherever God may create an opportunity for you and me to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. That's what the Great Commission is all about. It's not just about people meeting on a certain night at church and going out in teams and knocking on doors. No, I'll tell you the real thrust of evangelism is wherever you go. That's what Jesus said. He says, as you go. As you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to the park, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to have your car fixed, wherever you go. Now, I don't mean you need to walk in and just beat the cashier over the head with the Bible, tell her she's going to hell, she needs to get her heart right with Jesus. No, no, I think a little bit of tact goes a long way. We can take the relationships that we are blessed to enjoy and allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate those relationships You've got to build a bridge, brother or sister. You've got to demonstrate that they can trust you. Oh, listen, you can pressure people and twist their arms and get anybody just about to agree with and say whatever you want to and recite whatever you want them to just to get you off of their back. 
But I'll tell you, true evangelism is where you establish a relationship. It's biblical. And you win a sense of trust and confidence where you earn the right to tell them the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. But let me tell you something. Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. Did you notice that? He says, go and make disciples. That means that not only are you responsible for telling somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ and praying that the Holy Spirit will lead them, you've never saved anybody and you never will. I've never saved anybody and I never will. All I can do is witness to the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit does the soul's winning. The Holy Spirit does the saving. So therefore, you know, when we witness and we share the truth of the gospel, let me tell you something, dear friend. The, the importance of a relationship is, is it earns you the right to go back to them after they've been converted, after they've prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Take an interest in helping them to understand how important Bible study is. Take an interest in helping them to understand how important it is to be in church. Be there. Pray for them. Encourage them. Listen, the devil is going to follow you right in after you try to share the gospel with somebody. I promise you, the devil or one of his minions will be right on the heels of you. And they'll be trying to, he'll be trying to discourage them, dissuade them, anything you can do, do to keep them from becoming a true disciple. It's our responsibility as a church to follow up on every person that we share the gospel with. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. That's true evangelism. But having said that, every person... Every person that we come into contact is a potential prospect. Don't write anybody off because of the color of their skin or how they dress or the way they talk or the way they live. Don't write anybody off because you know what? God doesn't. He could have written the Apostle Paul off a long time ago. Persecutor of the church. Vile man that he was. Oh no, God didn't write him off and I'm glad. Now, I thank the Lord for that. I'm glad God didn't write me off. He could have written me off. There are plenty of reasons for God to look at old Charlie Martin in my sinfulness and wretchedness and rebelliousness and say, I don't need that crazy Indian in my kingdom. But He didn't write me off. Hallelujah. Not only must we carry out the Great Commission, but ladies and gentlemen, one of the other biblical mandates in order for us to be a kingdom church for the glory of God, we must practice the Great Commandments of our Lord. And Jesus made that abundantly clear. You know, the greatest commandments actually have their foundation in the Old Testament. I'll ask you to turn back to the Old Testament book of, of Deuteronomy. In chapter 6. You know, God was carving out a special relationship with the nation of Israel, the people of the, the Jews. And in order for them to be, the, for, in order for Him to be the God of the Jews, they needed to be the people of God. It was a covenant relationship. And God was basically telling them in the commandments that He was given through Moses, this is what I expect of you. This, this defines who my people are. And the greatest commandment was found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when God was speaking to Moses to speak to the children of Israel. Look at verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. And then he goes on and gives a charge to all the parents and grandparents. And I, and I want to emphasize that to all the parents here today. Grandparents and even great-grandparents. Our children hear a lot of things out of our mouths. Oh, look what a fancy car that is. Oh, look at that, that athlete running down the football field. Look at that slam dunk. Oh, look what a big house they have. Oh, look at the money. that. Listen, they hear a lot of things coming out of our mouths. Do they hear you say... I love the Lord my God. I love Jesus with everything in me. 
God loves you, honey. He wants you to love Him. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. You neglect that and you will answer to God. Well, I need to move along. The greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38. One of the scribes, a lawyer. And I told Brother Jerry, one of our regular guests now, and I had the privilege of sitting down with him and his lovely wife, Jordan, yesterday, and he shared with me he's an attorney. I said, oh, got to cut out the lawyer jokes now. But I'm just kidding, Jerry. God, I thank the Lord for the wonderful Christian attorneys that are out there that give a good name to the Lord and doing great, great kingdom work in the legal field. But it was a scribe. Sometimes they consider him a lawyer. But came to Jesus, testing him and said, Rabbi, teacher, yeah, what is the greatest commandment? You know, he knew them all. As a scribe, he knew them all. Just trying to puff himself up there and see if he could trip Jesus up. And so, what do you, you know, all the hundreds of commandments that we have. With all the law and traditions. Which is the greatest of the commandments? And without that and an eye, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Let me ask you, Christian. Do you? You don't have to answer to me. But you will answer to God. Do you? Does your lifestyle reflect that? Do, do the priorities that you set in your life Set, uh, uh, reflect that? Does the way you talk reflect that? Does the way you think reflect that? Do you? But Jesus went on to say after that, He said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, let me just say a little bit more about loving God. Because sometimes we, 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 we get this notion, oh, if I just say, Lord, I love you. Oh, we sing praises. Oh, how I love Jesus. You know, that's nice and fine, but let me tell you what Jesus is looking for. Love from the lips is okay. You can tell Him and you can sing it all you want to, but that doesn't cut it with the Lord. Here's what Jesus is looking for. He tells us clearly in John chapter 14, verse 21. He says, if anyone has my commandments and obeys them. Let me repeat that. If anyone has my commandments. Everybody that has a Bible in your hand, raise it up. Just want you to see, real quickly. Get them up there. Some of them, family Bibles, hard to get up in the air. There you go. So you're without excuse. You got His commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, Jesus says, that's the person that loves me. And the person that loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him also, and I will manifest myself to him. Loving God, folks, is hard work. It's sacrifice. It's conviction and determination. Some of the things that the Lord tells us to do, commands us to do, are not easy. But that's what it means to love the Lord. I, I need to move along. Loving God and loving others. I just said, Jesus said, the second greatest commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Some of you are thinking, man, you don't know my neighbor. Whew. Well, that's all right. Might be one of those motorcycle riding, beer guzzling, redneck, whatever's with a raccoon tail on the back of his antenna. I, look, I, I don't know. And if you ride a motorcycle and you have a raccoon tail, I'm not picking at you, okay? You shouldn't be drinking beer. But anyway, beside the point. <clears throat> uh, you know, neighbor. That's not just necessarily the person that lives across the street from you. I'm mighty proud to have my next door neighbors, Ronnie and Jean, with me today. So I have to really watch what I say about the neighborhood. But, but I love my neighbors. I thank God for them. 
But Jesus wasn't just talking about the people who live across the street from you. He's talking about anybody you encounter. He, he proved that in the parable of the Good Samaritan over in John's Gospel. I mean, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. He talked to, about the Good Samaritan. You encounter somebody in need. Even if they're not your race. Even if they're not your class economically or educationally or even if they dress differently when you do, even if their body is covered in tattoos or got things poked in it. Look, it doesn't matter. If you encounter somebody in need, they're your neighbor. And you be a neighbor to them by what the Good Samaritan did. He, he was not the gate. This was a Jew laying there on the, on the ground. Jews hated Samaritans. Called them dogs. He had every reason to just walk away from that man. But you see, Jesus said he didn't do that. He stopped, he, he took time, he made himself vulnerable, he sacrificed, he, he took care of the cost of this med- man's medical needs. Why? Because he was a good neighbor. He was obeying the second commandment. So must we. We'll have plenty of opportunities to love our neighbors. Some of them will be homeless people like uh, Bag Lady Birdie that came into our environment last night and entertained us. Some of them may be people strung out on drugs. Some of them may be people that are in prison or have, a, a, you know, backgrounds of, 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 of you know, uh, criminal activity. Listen, they, they may be undesirable people as far as society is concerned, but God says, listen, they're, they're your neighbor. Love them. But, you know, when we talk about loving others, could I just look, uh, offer a little footnote here? I, I really don't want you to miss this. Because I'm all for loving people on the outside of the church. I really am. I think that's a great thing that we go out on missions, whether it be to Kenya or to Mexico or over here across the street or up at the Northwest Second Harvest Food Bank or Frog Ministry or wherever. Listen, I think it's great that we love other people outside the church. But let me tell you something. You can't start loving people on the outside if you don't love people on the inside. You realize how hypocritical it is to talk about how much you love people out there that are in need and struggling and whatever. And deep in your heart, you have a lot of dislike or hate for someone that is a brother or sister in Christ. Do you realize how hypocritical that is and how unbiblical that is? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians in chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he didn't stop there. He goes on in verse 15 and says, But if you bite and devour one another, he's writing to Christians, Beware lest you be consumed by one another. We'll say a little bit more about that, but let's move on. Another great biblical foundational mandate is we must observe God's Ten Commandments. Now, before you get your guns loaded and say, Oh, wait a minute here, preacher. I'm of the new book. I don't like that Old Testament stuff. I, give me the gospel anytime. Give me the New Testament. We're under grace. And I don't deny, folks. Thank, thank the Lord. We're under a great covenant of grace. But let me tell you something. Jesus. Jesus came to establish a new covenant. But that new covenant, dear friend, is founded on the Old Covenant. You can't take away the Old Testament. Just because we are blessed to have the New Testament... There's no reason to discard the Old Testament because it serves as a foundation for the gospel, for the epistles of the books of the Bible, of the New Testament. See, Jesus came to fulfill what was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. If you want to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 31, I'll show you. This is already prophesied. This new covenant that you and I are privileged to enjoy, 
this new covenant of grace? Let me tell you something. All the way back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. God prophesied about a new covenant that He would establish with His people. And in verse 31, He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He goes on in verse 33 and says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. It will be written on stone tablets. It will be written on the hearts of people. Because the Holy Spirit will come as the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost and take up occupancy within the hearts of every believer. And every man, woman, child, young person who has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ is under this glorious, wonderful new covenant of grace. But let me tell you something. All of the principles of the Old Testament Ten Commandments are still in effect. Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to take it beyond what it was able to do. I came to take it beyond what man is able to do. I came to give a righteousness that you could never achieve through the law. The law only served to educate you to how lost you were, how much you need what Jesus came to give. But all of the principles, you shall have no other God but the Lord your God. That's still in place. The New Testament supports that. You shall not make graven images. You shall not have idols that, that take the place of God. Hey, listen, the New Testament still supports that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The New Testament teaching supports that. And on and on, you shall honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet your neighbor's belongings. It's all, listen, the New Testament only expands upon that. The only change is when it comes to observing the Sabbath day. And even the principle of that commandment is supported by the observance of the Lord's day. The Christians, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven, chose to make the day of worship the first day of the week. But let me tell you something. Many of the same principles of the Sabbath can be applied to the Lord's day. We don't need to be occupied with making money and, and, and going out there and continuing with normal daily activities on the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day. We don't worship the day, we worship the Lord. But this ought to be a day where we set aside to come to church, to worship God, to meet with believers, to encourage one another, to love one another, to pray with one another, to study the Word of God. Listen, this is the Lord's day. It ought to be a day that lifts Him up. Not fulfill our own personal needs. And so these principles of the, new, of, of the Ten Commandments still are in place. You cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and neglect the teachings of the, and the principles of the Ten Commandments. You can't. You're disobeying God's Word. Well, let's move on. Somebody stole my clock up here, Daryl. Yeah, I don't even know if it's 11.30 or 11.15. Or... <laughs> That's all right. I got my trusty 
watch here. Mickey's leg is on. Well, I better get man. Hey, we we must live. We must live out. You caught that, didn't you, Tyler? Yeah. We must live out His new commandment. His new commandment. And Jesus told His disciples, He says, Lord, I give unto you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So shall you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are My disciples if you love one another. Christ modeled this kind of unselfish, sacrificial, humble love we, listen, we have a responsibility, but better than that, we have the privilege of exercising a divine love that is foreign to the world. They can't even begin to comprehend how it is that Christians can love one another as we do. Listen, the only reason that I can love you as Christ loves you is that Christ is in me. I don't take credit for it, nor can you. But it is a commandment. Jesus says it is a commandment. And this is what is expected. Over in 1 John, and I'll quickly begin to wrap up here. In 1 John, you see Christian love is expounded here. In 1 John chapter 3. This is the other love chapter in the Bible. In 1 John in chapter 3, look with me there in verse 10. He says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to lost pagans. He's writing to people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. And if you harbor anything in your heart today that is not genuine, agape, Christ love, For brothers and sisters, consider yourself maybe not even in Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's a very sobering conviction. But that's what the Word of God says. And then in verse 16, same chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has these wor- this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so you see the importance of this wonderful love that Christ has modeled for us and given to us by His Holy Spirit. I pray that as we move through the implementation of the of the Transformational Church Action Plan to develop intentional relationships. I pray that this will be a glorious opportunity for us as a congregation to exercise God's love for one another. I hope that the thing that characterizes our care groups, and by the way, if you're not coming on second Wednesday night, you're missing out on one of the greatest things God is doing in the life of this church to develop true, meaningful Christian relationship. It's called care groups. And I encourage you to make sure that you're here. I want you to be here every Wednesday night. But don't miss the care group night on the second Wednesday night. But let me move on because you see, that's where we have the privilege of exercising and manifesting this kind of love for one another. You know what motivates Christians to love one another? Chapter 4, 1 John. And I'll be closing with this. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 John. Here's your motivation. If you don't feel genuine Christ's love for other believers, then you've missed this. You missed something very important. I'm not talking about knowledge in the head. You may know it in your mind, but I'm talking about you have missed experiencing this in your life. Here's the motivation. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means Jesus went to that cross instead of you. Jesus suffered the nails being pierced through His hands and His feet instead of you. Jesus hung there in agony as His life ebbed away from Him, as He gasped for breath, as He was dying of dehydration and suffering in agony for hour upon hour. He did that instead of you. He bore the awesome, unimaginable weight of sin and the penalty of sin upon His shoulders that caused Him to cry out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He endured the pain of hell instead of you. Get the picture? Why? Because He loves us. Now look at verse 11. Beloved Christians, born again believers, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Nothing ought to drive you into the arms of a brother or sister with Christian, humble, Christ-like, sacrificial love. More than knowing that at a time when you so desperately needed saving, Christ, God's Son, died for you. That ought to make us the most loving people ever to walk the face of the earth. So how are you doing with the vision that God has put on our heart? Every time I study this and every time I preach it, God convicts my heart. I made a little progress, but there's still room for improvement. And I trust that's probably the way it is with you. But isn't it good to know that we have a patient God and a loving God and a forgiving God and a God of grace. Becoming a kingdom church for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great You are. How holy and righteous and perfect You are. How blessed we are that You would send Your only begotten Son into this wicked, wretched, sin-soaked world to rescue desperate, hopeless, hell-bound sinners like us. And then to call us to be Your people under a covenant of grace sealed by the blood of Your Son, Jesus. How blessed we are. Lord, thank You for calling us, setting us apart, 
And thank You for giving us a clear biblical vision for where we need to move. Help us, Lord. We could never do this on our own. We need You. I pray for individual Christians who are under conviction by the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God this morning. I thank You, Lord, for conviction because conviction has steered me back on the path of Your will plenty of times and I pray it will be for them. God, I pray, do the work that You do best in the hearts of the people You call Your people today. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't have a personal relationship with You through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and they are desiring to do that because You are moving in their heart today, I pray You would move upon their heart to let them come to Me and just simply say, I want to be saved today. I want to be a part of this great eternal kingdom that You speak of in the Word of God. Lord, let this be a day of salvation too. We thank You and we give You praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.